0: seven artisans cap lens two. what is an intervalometer and more greetings everybody you're listening to the liam photography podcast i'm your host liam douglas and this is episode 313 today is sunday february 5th 2023 and these are the latest news and rumor stories that caught my eye for this past week Canon USA settles with employees affected by 2020 ransomware attack. Canon USA has agreed to settle claims regarding the data breach it suffered in August of 2022 and will pay affected employees cash for compromising their personal data. Canon USA has agreed to pay employees that were affected by the data breach up to $7,500 for monetary losses and $300 for out-of-pocket expenses in a deal that has been filed in federal court, Bloomberg Law reports. Nine named plaintiffs had filed a class action lawsuit against the camera company for what they described as failing to encrypt their personal information or take any other adequate measures to protect it. They also claimed that Canon did not provide notice of the breach to the affected employees fast enough. Canon was hit by a ransomware attack in August of 2020. A group called Maze claimed responsibility for the attack and was able to glean a wide range of internal information including email, team collaboration software, the entirety of the Canon USA website data, and other internal applications. Maze claimed it had stolen a total of 10 terabytes of data from the attack. For a time after the attack, all of Canon USA's websites were down and returned to an internal server error. It wasn't until the following November that Canon publicly confirmed that a large amount of information had been stolen from its network and gave notice that the server that housed a significant amount of its employees' personal information, including their social security numbers, driver's license numbers, or other government-issued identifications. The company also admitted that the attackers managed to take financial account numbers Canon used for direct deposit for employees, as well as any e-signatures and dates of birth. The amount of time that the theft covered was extensive and took data from any employee that had been working at Canon starting in 2005 through the attack in 2020. It was never made clear if Canon ever paid the ransom. Last year, General Electric settled a class action lawsuit with its own employees over a data breach at Canon Business Process Services. While it's not clear if this is the same incident, the data that was stolen appears to be of a similar nature. Quote, one thing is clear, the data breach could have been avoided through basic security measures, including manufacturer authentication or multi-factor authentication and user security training. That lawsuit contended, which is similar to the language used by the Canon class action lawsuit. Resolving this lawsuit the way it did does not require Canon to admit any wrongdoing. When asked how many employees were affected and if it paid the ransom, Canon declined to comment. So as you can see here, nobody is immune to ransomware attacks. And it's just odd to me as somebody who's worked in IT for 32 years, as well as doing photography for that long, that a company as big as Canon wouldn't have proper security safeguards in place for their data that's unfathomable. Shooting the landscape at 70 miles an hour. Landscape photography at 70 miles an hour? Is it even possible? For years, the idea of landscape photography was put your camera on a tripod, frame very carefully, then wait for the light to be perfect before you shot. But what if you had to do everything in exactly the opposite way? Recently, I traveled from Chicago to Santa Fe. We had to drive 1,300 miles in four days, and that meant we would usually be going about 70 miles an hour. It seemed crazy to me to imagine I could take pictures along the way, but just for fun, I brought my camera along, and this is what happened next. We pulled out of Chicago on a gray afternoon, heading west. A few hours later, cruising on Interstate 72, I started paying attention to the scenery passing by. Hmm. That's interesting. It was an industrial landscape with trucks, cars, and smokestacks, the ribbon of the road. All of it was sailing by at 70 miles an hour, and I was looking at it through the windshield, but nonetheless, I started wondering if there was a way to make pictures of it. My camera was at my feet. It always is when I'm on the road, so I picked it up and started looking. The first thing I saw was at the end of a long, Lens was going to be my workhorse, so I racked it out 70 uh, millimeter and started fishing. Now, let's take a minute here to talk about how impossible this would have been a few years ago. Let's begin with the limitations of film. The fastest color stock then was ASA 400, and even now it doesn't get much faster than Porta 800. On the other hand, any modern digital camera will happily give you another stop or two. And that's important, because I wanted to shoot with a shutter speed of between one twenty five hundredth and one eight thousandth of a second to freeze the moving scenery. I also wanted an iris of at least f eight to give me the depth of field that the seventy millimeter lens required. Then the camera needed great stabilization because a camera without it would mess up too many shots. If you ever want to know how much your car shakes as it goes down the road, put up a long lens, put your eye in the viewfinder and try to hold a frame. Even with 5-axis stabilization and careful hand-holding, I soon decided to frame a little loose to give myself a chance to perfect the composition after the fact. I figured that as long as the image was crisp, I could define the edges later. And that leads to the last thing. I've never been so happy that my camera had a 45-megapixel sensor because I knew I'd be throwing away some of its resolution on every shot. So the good news was that I finally found a situation that would really test every aspect of a modern camera. And then I found out that shooting this way would really test me too. At 70 miles an hour, you're moving through space at about 102 feet per second, 102.667 if you want to be a little more precise. A 70 millimeter lens only sees about 28 degrees horizontally on a full frame body. That's an angle similar than this, So when you point the lens out the side window and the scene rushes by so fast that there's no way you can really see it, at least not the part of the scenery close to the lens. But that's what the 800th of a second shutter speed is all about. Remember, we are traveling at 102 feet per second. With a shutter speed of 1 8,000, the car only moves forward at about an inch during the exposure. That's magic. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Here's a frame made looking out the side window as we rolled down the road doing about 70. You can see from the data the light has dropped a little because I was shooting in aperture mode and the camera dropped the shutter speed to 12500th of a second. So let's look at what that did to the picture. The trees are tack sharp even at 125 hundredth, because they are hundreds of feet away. The inch or two of forward motion is a tiny fraction of that. In the foreground, though, the field is only 20 or 25 feet from the camera. Here, the car's motion relative to the field becomes visible. Another thing you can see is that the focus is just a tad back from where it should be. Even at f8 depth of field, it is on the ragged edge. I might want to shoot at f11 and bring focus forward a tad next time. But even with the camera helping you, it's still not easy. You have to size up the scene long before you get to it, make decisions about where the best angle will be, uh, watch the scene coming into frame, and getting bigger every second. And, oh, yes, try to guess when and where you can shoot to miss the fence posts or other foreground obstacles that keep trying to get in between you and your scene. It's a great dance, one that really sharpens your reflexes after a day or two. Here's a picture I chased for a mile or two. It began when I saw that contrail high in the sky and thought it would be great if there was nothing between it and the ground. So I asked my friend Dave to speed up to get to the place with only a low hill in the distance, then slow down to hold this changing frame in view as long as he could. I shot four or five pictures in 30 seconds, and only this one really came together. But I knew it was a keeper even as I was pressing the release. In that way, this is shooting landscapes like you might shoot concerts or sports. You have to go with your gut, trust the world will give you what you need, and act without an instant of hesitation. So, did this plan always work? No, of course not. I could easily spend an hour telling you about the pictures I didn't get, the ones where my camera was on the floor instead of in my hands, or when a car got in my way at the last second, or the times I decided too late that there was a picture hiding just up ahead. But we don't live for the pictures we didn't make, only the ones we did. So here are some landscape pictures made at 70 miles an hour. It is possible, and I had a good time doing it, too. And you can look at this article in the show notes for today's episode, and he did get some really amazing images considering the speed that they were traveling at. So my hat's off to him for giving that a try. I've actually done that a few times myself, trying to shoot landscape from a moving car. It is truly a challenge. Seven Artisans introduces an 18 millimeter f6.32 cap lens for APS-C cameras seven artisans has announced an extremely affordable 18 millimeter f632 ultra thin cap lens which makes major changes from the company's original version the 18 millimeter f6.3 mark II cap lens is 59 dollars super thin lens that the company says is designed to look like a body cap but offers instead a wide-angle lens the slim nature of the optic makes it in Seven Artisans' words, perfect for casual walk-around shooting since the wide-angle focal focal length suits street and documentary shooting applications. When mounted on a compatible APS-C camera, the 18-millimeter lens has an equivalent focal length of 27 millimeters with a 76-degree angle of view. The lens has a close focusing distance of 0.3 meters, weighs 58 grams, and is not compatible with any filters. The first iteration of the 18mm f6.3 cap lens looks quite different from this new upgraded version. While both lenses are a fixed aperture and feature no diaphragm blades, Seven Artisan's first cap lens was only available for the Canon EOS M mount and Micro Four Thirds, neither of which are available for the new option, which works with Fujifilm X mount, Nikon Z, and Sony E mount. The upgraded 18mm F6.3 Mark II enhances the optical formula of the first, but doesn't use additional glass lenses to do so. The previous version used a six-element and four-group arrangement, while this new version changes that to six-elements and five-group design. What the two lenses do share in common is an all-metal construction. The 18mm f II ultra-thin cap lens now has an adjustable 0 to a 0.3 meter to infinity focus distance, and is advertised as thinner than a biscuit. Below are a few sample photos with the lens courtesy of seven artisans. And you can check those out in this article in the show notes, of course. As always, being the second design iteration from Seven Artisans, it should not come as any surprise that the concept isn't new. For example, in 2019, Funleader raised nearly $35,000 on Kickstarter to produce its 18mm f8 cap lens, which was made to support full-frame mirrorless cameras. By the end of 2020, and after delivering all units to crowdfunding backers, Funleader made the ultra-compact walk-around lens available to purchase directly from its website. That lens was quite affordable at $149. The 7 Artisans 18mm f6.3 Mark II cap lens for APS-C cameras is available starting today from $59 from both the company's online store and per-gear. And as you know, I have had the fund leader cap lens. I had it originally for Canon RF mount, and I recently got the same lens for my Fujifilm X mount. And I'm intrigued by this one because this one has a slightly wider aperture at f6.3 versus f8. And at $59, I'm definitely going to have to pick up this new one from Seven Artisans and do a little comparison. might make for a good YouTube video to compare these two 18-millimeter cap lenses and see how they perform, how they stack up against each other. What is an intervalometer? An intervalometer is an important tool for for photographers that is useful across a range of photography genres and techniques, including time-lapse, focus stacking, and long exposure. If you're not familiar with intervalometers and would like to be brought up to speed, you've come to the right place. In this article, we will look at what an intervalometer is, explore the common features you'll find, and explain whether or not it is a tool you may want to add to your own camera bag. Now, I didn't initially realize that this article was so long, and I think it would be more fair to actually continue this as a separate episode and one of my upcoming Thursday episodes. Now, this next Thursday, I have my interview with Susie Pratt from Gemini Connect that'll be releasing. Um, so, this would make a good full-length episode for the following Thursday. So, I'm not going to go into the full story because it is quite lengthy, and I don't want to bore my listeners to death. But I will be going over this topic in greater detail in a couple of weeks. So definitely want to stay tuned for that so you can get more information on whether or not this might be a piece of gear that you could use in your camera bag. Sandmark's new carbon fiber tripod is made specifically for iPhone shooters. Sandmark's new carbon fiber tripod is the latest example that shows the company takes smartphone photography seriously, as it is designed specifically for use with the iPhone. The company currently offers a range of iPhone-centric products like filters, lenses, and sliders. So, uh, Sandmark actually already offers two other compact tripods aimed at iPhone shooters, but this new edition is the first to use carbon fiber, which shaves down its weight from the Pro Edition's 2.63 pounds to 2.28 pounds. Obviously, a photography product as ubiquitous as a tripod can't be changed much to accommodate a smartphone versus a full-size camera. But there isn't a lot that Sanmark has done to tailor it to be just for an iPhone. It leans into those mobile-centric claims mainly through the inclusion of a smartphone mount that clicks into the Arca Swiss-like ball head. The tripod doesn't appear to cut any corners, despite targeting what most photographers would consider to be the low end of the market. It is made using carbon fiber to keep it lightweight, portable, and compacts down to 15.35 inches long. When fully open, the tripod reaches a height of 64.4 inches. Quote, a fully equipped and industrially built tripod made for iPhone, Sandmark describes quick adjustability and a pro level ball head for portrait and landscape orientation, a seamless experience when shooting with your iPhone. While marketed as sold and sold as an iPhone tripod, there isn't much stopping a photographer from using it with a traditional camera since it can support a maximum payload of 13.23 pounds. That's actually substantially more than most camera kits weigh, meaning the tripod should be extremely robust. Sandmark actually lists most DSLRs and mirrorless cameras as supported at the bottom of its compatibility list, along with GoPros and basically every iPhone since the iPhone 4. There doesn't appear to be any reason why the tripod mount would not work with most Android-based smartphones as well. The included ball head allows for the standard articulation of an attached camera, which includes both portrait and landscape orientation, for an attached smartphone or full-size camera. Each of the three carbon fiber legs has three sections that are held in place with standard twisting locks, and the center shaft is also carbon fiber and can be raised and lowered by a simple twist lock. The Sandmark Carbon Edition tripod for iPhone is currently available for pre-order at $300. The company says that it intends to start shipping units starting in March. And I think this is a really cool thing, but again, it's not really just a smartphone tripod. And for $300, I mean, there's a lot of other companies that make high-quality carbon fiber tripods for that price that you can easily mount a smartphone on with just a simple adapter and uh, be off and running. So it is cool, but I don't think it's anything I'd be interested in. I already have those capabilities with the multitude of tripods that I already own. An unknown glitch on the Juno probe caused the loss of 200 plus photos of Jupiter. NASA's Juno spacecraft team is currently evaluating data to determine why a majority of photos captured by the Juno cam and its most recent flyby were unusable. While similar to a previous glitch, this new one lasted much longer and resulted in the loss of 214 photos. JunoCam, the camera system on board the Juno spacecraft, is described by NASA as a color visible light camera that is designed to capture pictures of Jupiter's cloud tops. Quote, it was included on the spacecraft specifically for purposes of public engagement, but has proved to be important for science investigation also, the Juno team explains. The camera was originally designed to operate in Jupiter's high-energy particle environment for at least seven orbits, but has survived far longer. The Juno cam has provided a multitude of gorgeous photos of the solar system's largest planet, but a recent unknown glitch has caused it to fail in recent flybys. Scientists are currently evaluating engineering data to determine why the majority of photos taken by the solar-powered orbiter were not saved. The issue took place during the spacecraft's most recent flyby of Jupiter on January 22nd, and NASA says that the data is currently, it shows that, The camera system experienced an issue that is similar to one that occurred during its last close flyby of the gas giant in December, an anomalous temperature rise after it was powered on, although this problem persisted for far longer. The first glitch only took the system offline for 36 minutes, while this most recent issue lasted for 23 hours. The photos in this story are some of the ones that were taken after the JunoCam recovered from the problem. Quote, as with the previous occurrence, once the anomaly that caused the temperature rise cleared, the camera returned to normal operation and the remaining 44 images were good quality and usable, the Juno team reports. The team is currently evaluating the data and that they have determined the root cause of the issue as Juno is scheduled to make its next close flyby on March 1. The mission team hopes to have a mitigation strategy in place before then. The Juno cam will remain powered on for now, and the mission team says that to date, it continues to operate in its normal state. It is likely the mission team will provide an update as soon as they're able to. Now, that is interesting, and I'm assuming it must be because the camera is inside the orbiter, because I would think if it was an externally mounted camera, how in the world would it overheat in the cold vacuum of space? Interesting. But I hope they get it worked out because it definitely sucks to lose your opportunity to get good photographs of a planet when you have your orbiter flying by in a close orbit. I'm going to take a break right here and then I'll be right back. We hope you're enjoying this edition of the Liam Photography Podcast The best way to support the show is to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else that you get your podcasts. If you want to leave comments or suggestions for future episodes, you can call or text the show at area code 470-294-8191. And you can email the show at liam at liamphotographypodcast.com. You can find the show notes and links at Podcast.com And you can tweet the show at liamphotoatl using the hashtag podcast. And now back to the show. And we're back. And now we're going to head on over to Canon rumors and see what we have from them for this week. Canon will soon announce the Canon EOS R8 and the Canon EOS R50, along with two new kit lenses. It looks like the rumors over the last few months are coming to fruition shortly. Canon will announce two camera bodies very soon, alongside the recently uncovered Canon RF 24-50mm F45-63 STM. The long-rumored Canon EOS R8 will be announced along with the Canon EOS R50. If we're going by the information in this post, the Canon EOS R8 will be full-frame and the EOS R50 will be an APS-C and will likely be the evolution of the EOS M system to the RF mount. There is also another STM lens coming with these cameras, the Canon RF-S 210 f 5 71 IS STM. The Canon EOS RA will be body only or kitted with the Canon RF 24 to 50 F45 to 63. Pricing will be $14.99 body only in the US and $16.99 with the body and the 24 to 50 millimeter IS STM lens again in US dollars. The Canon US R50, possibly two colors for the body, kitted with the Canon RFS 18-45, F45-63 IS STM, and the Canon RFS 55-210, F5-71 IS STM. Pricing 679 for the body only in US dollars. Pricing is 1,029 with both of the lenses. And again, that's in US dollars. The Canon RF 24 to 50, F45 to 63 ISSTM pricing will be 299. And the Canon RFS fifty five to 210 F5 to 71 ISSTM. Pricing is unknown at present. So I guess we'll have to wait and see. <laughs> canon eos r8 specifications digicam info has posted specifications for the upcoming canon eos r8 we think we're going to see a few surprises in this camera body when it is announced alongside the r50 next week the canon eos r8 specifications this is rumored 24 megapixel full frame cmos sensor digit 10 processor dual pixel cmos af2 subject detection aircraft trains cars and animals up to 40 frames per second, 4K 60p, 6K oversampling, full HD at 180 frames per second, C log 3, in body image stabilization is not installed, a variance monitor, 3.5 millimeter microphone jack streaming via USB C, new form factor, new very angle monitor. The weight is 461 grams with a kit lens of the RF 24 to 50 f 4.5 5 6.3 ISSTM, Overseas price body 14.99, lens kit 16.99. So I guess we'll have to wait and see if these are announced this coming week. And now over to Nikon rumors. The latest Nikon savings, February of 2023. The current Nikon USA rebates can be found at Adorama, BNH Photo, Paul's Photo, and Service Photo. The new rebates now include also several Nikon binoculars. On, 10%, or on February 16th, Nikon Europe will introduce a new 10% discount on all lenses except for the following. The Nikkor Z 400mm F2.8 TC VRS, the Nikkor Z 600mm F4 TC VRS, the Nikkor Z 800mm F63 VRS, the Nikkor Z 100-400 F45-56 VRS, and the Nikkor Z 58mm F095 S not here's the complete list of cameras and lenses that have been discounted this month. And I'm not going to read the whole list because it's quite long. But of course, you can find it in this article in the show notes and check it all out for yourself. Nikon will allow third party lenses only if they are complementary to the Nikkor lens lineup. I was told that Nikon will officially license third-party autofocus lenses for Z-mount only if they complement Nikon's current lens lineup rather than compete with the existing Nikkor Z lenses. You can already see that strategy with the current third-party Z lenses from Tamron. The Nikon Z 28-75mm lens by Tamron is not the same as the Nikkor 24 70 f2.8 or the 24 70 f4. The Tamron 70 300 f 4 5 6 di 3 RXD lens for Nikon Z is also a unique focal length zoom in the lineup. This is not the case with manual focus lenses. Nikon can authorize the same focal lengths that are already existing Nikkor Z models. For example, most of the Voigtlander Z lenses have the same Nikkor focal length equivalent. You can expect the same scenario with the upcoming Sigma lenses for the Nikon Z mount. And now let's see what Patrick has for us over at Fuji Rumors. (laughs) Goodbye, Fujifilm X-T4, my best X-T4 experience, and the lens I'll buy with the money earned from its sale. My Fujifilm X-T4 is gone, sold. Unlike when I sold my X-T1, there won't be a huge emotional goodbye today. But that's not to say I didn't appreciate my XD4. On the contrary, I have done lots of work, weddings included, and travel with it, taking lovely family images. At a certain moment, I even fell madly in love with with the selfie screen. It was 2020, and since February, I was in lockdown and teaching online. I filmed my lessons with my XE3, but when I finally received the XT4, it totally improved my workflow to be able to see myself during recording. But I also started to make more creative videos for my students, which they appreciated, as you can hear from their WhatsApp feedback I've shared in this article, direct video here. So I guess this could be called my best experience with the X-T4. It simplified my teacher life during lockdown and also gave me a creative boost. And to be honest, there were several other occasions where the fully articulating screen turned out very handy, as I've described in an accompanying article. So to be clear, it might not have been my all-time favorite camera, but I appreciated it and had lots of fun with it and for the sale. And yet, the day I received the rumor that the Fujifilm X-T5 has a three-way tilt screen, a masterpiece of a rumor, by the way, with quotes from V for Vendetta, Vendetta, I did put my Fujifilm X-T4 up for sale, because although I can see the advantages of a fully articulating screen, for my style of shooting, the disadvantages just outweigh the pros. I needed a couple of months to sell it. I feel like most buyers simply have unrealistic expectations on how much second gear should cost. I received messages from people who said they won't pay more than 500 bucks. Of course, I declined such offers and wished them good luck to find an XT4 for that price in 2038. At the end, I found someone living just 15 minutes car drive from my home who bought it at a fair price. The new owner of my X-T4, Nicole, is more into video and prefers the fully articulating screen of the X-T4. I am happy to see that my X-T4 is in the hands of someone who is going to truly appreciate and love it. My next lens? And what should I do with the money I earned from the X-T4's sale? Buy more lenses, of course. After lots of thought, I decided that it would be one of the new fastest 40 megapixel capable primes, but which one? The good old XF35 1.4 is a source of eternal joy and happiness for me, snapping personal favorite images over and over again. It kills any desire for the XF33 F1.4 for me. I use the original XF56 1.2 mostly for portraits. I don't need faster AF in those occasions. And I also don't need the even sharper images of the new XF56 1.2 RWR. It's portraits, people usually don't really desire to have the wrinkles captured in high-resolution 40-megapixel glory. The current 56 is plenty of sharp enough, no need for even sharper portraits. So what's left? The original XF23 1.4 is the lens I've used in some of the most important moments of my life. It was the only lens I took with me when my son was born. It was a stunning performer during the Wedding I photographed. I made some travels carrying only the XF23 1.4 with me. It's just incredibly flexible and also fun and beautiful thanks to the focus clutch. But as much as I appreciate it, I am not madly in love with it like many of my uh, like I am with my XF35 1.4. So the new XF23 1.4 RLMWR is an option the XF 18mm f1.4 RLMWR. I once owned the Pancake XF 18 f2 lens. When I sold it, I did miss the Pancake style and the 18mm field of view every now and then. I replaced my desire for a Pancake with the XF 27 f2.8 RWR, but I still sometimes miss having that nice 18mm prime. Now for the decision. One would say, so keep the old XF23 and get the XF18. But here is the thing, as you've seen from the examples I made above, 23 millimeter is a really nice focal length that I use in many important moments of my life. And the idea of having the stellar ultra sharp and fast focusing XF23 1.4 R LMWR is intriguing to me. So the master plan is this. With the money from the X-D4 sale, I will buy the new X-F23. I give it one to two months and hope hope for a sale. Otherwise, I'll buy it for full price. Once I have it, I'll sell the old X-F23 and have some more money to buy even more lenses. Maybe the X-F18 1.4 or why not even the X-F16 1.4. 2023 just starts as 2022 ended. I still struggle with my gas and smiley face, which, if you don't remember, gas means gear acquisition syndrome. Viltrox increases prices on X Mount lenses. BH Photos still selling at cheaper price, but for how long? When checking the Viltrox store today, an FR reader noticed that Viltrox started to increase the prices on their X Mount lenses. I don't know what is happening, and dropped an email to Viltrox to ask for clarification. As soon as I get a reply, I will update this article. But for now, my best recommendation is if you wanted to grab any of the lenses, better do it now at B&H Photo. We don't know if soon, also, B&H will have to raise the prices on Viltrox X-mount lenses, or maybe Viltrox will revert back to the original pricing. Here is the breakdown of the prices of Viltrox compared to B&H Photo. At the time of this post, the Viltrox 75 millimeter f1.2, 549 at BH Photo versus 669 at Viltrox. The Viltrox 13 millimeter f1.4, 459 at BH Photo and 559 at Viltrox. The Viltrox 23 millimeter f1.4, 299 at BH Photo versus 401 at Viltrox. The Viltrox 23 mm f1.4, $279 at BH Photo versus 340 at Viltrox. The Viltrox 56 mm f1.4, $299 at BH Photo versus 401 at Viltrox. And the Viltrox 85 mm f1.8, 8, $399 at BH Photo and 399 at the Viltrox store. So I guess we'll have to wait and see if they're going to go up everywhere in price or if it's some temporary price hike just on their website it is interesting though and now over to sony alpha rumors it's official sony registered a new camera coming soon sony officially registered a new camera in china this means a new model will be announced very soon within one to two months i told you today that sony will announce a new 50 millimeter gm lens on february 21st and another product in march so i guess this confirms it The Sony WW198387 has Wi-Fi 2.4 gigahertz and Bluetooth. Sony Electronics Wuxi Company LTD registration date is February 3rd of 2023. And other than that, there isn't a whole lot of other information on what it could potentially be. So I guess we'll just have to wait and see what comes down the pike. (laughs) Rumor New Sony 50mm f1.4 GM will be announced on February 21st, and one more announcement coming in March. I finally got a date Sony will have a new product announcement event on February 21st. What to expect? The new 50mm f1.4 GM, size similar to the 3514, very likely no other new lenses or cameras. Now, I hear your disappointment, but it's my duty is to cheer you up now. The same source also said a more major announcement will follow soon after in March. And this should be definitely something way more interesting for your readers. As soon as I can, I will post exact info about the March event, even event on SAR and on my YouTube channel. And here's the accompanying video about this. And you can check out his video on YouTube for yourself. And that wraps up all the news and rumors episode or stories for this week To join that group, but you do have to answer two security questions to join that group. You can find my work at liamphotography.net and follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at liamphotoatl. If you like abandoned buildings and history, you can find my projects at forgottenpiecesofgeorgia.com and forgottenpiecesofpennsylvania.com. All right, once again, that's going to wrap episode 313 of the Liam Photography Podcast. I want to thank all of my listeners once again for subscribing, rating, and reviewing in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pandora, and anywhere else you might be getting your podcast. I also wanted to remind you to stop by the Liam Photography YouTube channel, subscribe to the channel, watch the videos, like them, comment on them, share them out on social media, and hit the little bell icon so you can be notified when new content drops. And I will be dropping a new video later on this afternoon, so make sure you're watching for that. Also, do not forget to enter my latest contest where I'm giving away a Platypod Extreme flat tripod, which is donated by the good folks at Platypod. They are sponsoring the contest, not the show, so just for full transparency. Also, let me know what you think of the new Liam Photography Podcast website. It got a massive revamp this past week or so, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. And you can even leave a comment on the site, I believe, on this new site. I do allow comments, so you could do that as well. You could also sign up and request to be a guest on the show. If you have a subject you'd like to talk about related to photography or videography, you can send in a guest request, fill out that form, and I'll get back to you. And that is going to wrap it up. I will see you all again on Thursday.